0: Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals himself. We thank you that you have not only revealed the way by which we can be saved, uh, but you are constantly revealing your character to us through your word, your will to us, uh, what you have called us to do in this world until we see you one day face to face. Lord, we thank you that all of your word is profitable for us and we pray that it might have its good um, work in our lives this morning. Not that we just might learn more things about content, uh, but that we might be uh, transformed in our hearts to love you, to serve you in all of our entirety with all that we have. So work by your spirit, help me to... Uh, speak clearly and truthfully and on some of the things that are a little bit unclear uh, Lord we pray that that we would uh, know the mind of Christ on these matters ask in Jesus name, Amen. So we finally have come to the final passage in James and I think you'll agree it's been an enormously practical book but at the same time also even though it's quite simple to understand it's a very challenging and difficult book because throughout the pr- process we've been confronted with the question of am i more interested in knowing about god than my actually I am in mean, genuinely knowing god it's challenged the way in which we use our words do we use our words to to build others up that we actually strengthen the christian community by the speech that we use or do we damage and tear people down by the words that we use. It's caused us to question, is my life genuinely oriented around God and a love for him, or around myself and my own gain and pursuits? So in that sense, it's probably been a book which has made us uncomfortable at times. But if being made uncomfortable shows us our need of our saviour, And causes us to press into him more deeply than that's a good uncomfortable to have. It's also been a pleasure to preach as we've worked our way through these five chapters. But what I find interesting is when you look at the things which begin and end this letter. The beginning of the book, James said that verse that nobody likes hearing, consider it pure joy. When... As in, it's inevitable when you face trials of various kinds. What a way to start a letter. Consider it joy. You're going to face trials and you're going to get all sorts of different types of them. Now remember James is writing to Christians who had fled from Jerusalem as a result of persecution who were most likely in a position where they're quite poor, doing it tough. And in the middle of that hardship people are often tempted to reconsider, is my faith worth it? Is following Jesus the right choice to have made? Now James has reminded his readers of many basic truths, reminding them that just knowing things about God, getting all the trivia questions right, is not enough. Faith without works is dead. And he's pointed to a genuine faith that uses words to build others up, that is peaceable in nature, that thinks more highly of others than of self, that is patient, that recognizes that the Lord God is Lord, that he is sovereign over all things, and we wait patiently and we desire his will and his will alone. But it would appear that many to whom James writes have struggled to live according to the faith that they professed. And so, the way James finishes this epistle is very different than the way Paul usually finishes. Paul often finishes with, okay, say good day to this person and to this person, greet the brothers with a holy kiss, and so on and so forth. But James finishes on a call to prayer in all seasons and to restore those who have wandered away from the truth. Now think if he's writing to a people who have been tempted as they see the flourishing of those around them to wander from the truth. He says, call one another back to the truth. But as he has introduced them by saying that you will face various trials to remind them in all seasons, the good and the bad, commit yourself to the Lord in prayer. So we're going to look at praying at all times in 13 to 15. Confessing your sins and praying for one another in sixteen to eighteen, calling backsliders back to the truth in nineteen to twenty, and then wrapping it up, speaking of the Lord and Saviour, your Lord and theirs. Firstly, praying at all times. No Christian is going to disagree that prayer is paramount in the life of the Christian it is the means by which we we place our dependence upon god in all things we bring them before him and we have access to stand boldly before his throne both jesus and paul said the christian life should be one of persistent and constant prayer before the parable of the persistent widow james said sorry jesus said the very purpose of that parable was that they might always pray and not lose heart. Likewise, Paul to the Thessalonians says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So not only does Jesus say this is what he wants you to do, according to Paul, this is the will of God that we be praying without ceasing. That doesn't mean that there's no five-second bracket within our day in which we've, we haven't prayed, that it means that we should have lives that have a constant, consistent approach to prayer, that we do not neglect, we don't go through days without coming before the, the Lord in prayer. This is the will of God for you, that you are constant and persistent in prayer. And it's odd that some people spend so much time wondering what is the will of God for them in their life, Yet, neglect some of the very basic things that God says, this is my will, that you pray without ceasing. Now, James addresses three areas, not entirely comprehensive of everything that could ever happen, times to come before the Lord in prayer. The first being one of the ones that comes most naturally. We're good at doing this one to pray in hardship. Saying, if is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Now neither the ESV nor NIV express the full strength of what James is actually saying. The ESV has got let him pray. It almost sounds like he's got permission to pray. Or the NIV says he should pray, kind of sounds like, oh, it's good advice, this is our recommendation. But the way in which it is written in the Greek, it is a command. It is an imperative. Is anyone suffering? Pray. Do it. And notice too, it doesn't just say, ask everyone else to pray for you. Is anyone suffering? James says, first priority, you yourself. Make sure you pray for yourself. That doesn't mean don't invite others to pray alongside you. you should. We're part of a family together. And it certainly is a privilege to join with other people during their times of trial in prayer. But your prayer for the person who is going through hardship should never be a replacement for their own prayer for themselves. But when we're in the middle of suffering, let's be honest, we can be tempted to complain. But when we complain, what we declare about God is that either he's not good or that he's not acting for our benefit in this process. But when we come before the Lord in prayer in the middle of our suffering, we're saying, God, I trust that you are good. God, I trust that you are in control of every area of my life and I'm going to commit to you regardless of the outcome. And you notice that James doesn't even tell you what to pray. James doesn't say, if any one of you is suffering, you should pray that you might find relief from your suffering. We should pray for God's will to be done. James has already stated, relief from difficulty is not always the best outcome. When we went back to the very opening chapter, when he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James says, sometimes God, yes, he will do. Exactly, he'll take you out of that situation, but sometimes for the building up of your faith, for the strengthening of your faith and for your own maturity, the best thing for you to do is to allow that hardship to have its good full effect that you might be brought to maturity through that process. So James' first words are, if you are suffering, pray. Bring it before the Lord in prayer. Now the second also brings a person's attentions to God, not when they're suffering, but when they're cheerful. Saying, if is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Again, like the one before, it's an imperative. If there's anyone cheerful, sing praise. This is how we should do this, what we should do in response to good times. We should recognise that, as he said in the opening chapter, that every good and perfect gift is from, him, is from him above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to a change. Therefore, if you are cheerful, you should give thanks and praise to the one to whom is the giver of every good gift. So whether you're suffering or cheerful, you come before the Lord in prayer. Now, thirdly, is when you are sick. Welcome all those on Zoom who are sick at this point in time. Differs in very... What has been commanded for the others, and that it also calls others to pray. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I know you've got questions busting out of your head on that verse. Now, sickness would probably would come under the banner of suffering as well. So, again, initial principle pray for yourself. But, for the sick, it says, also ask the elders to pray for you. And again, if you note from the text there, it says, the initiative should come from the person who is sick to ask the elders to come and pray for them. Now, here's the questions that this is going to raise, hopefully. Well, not hopefully, but presumably. Why the elders? What does it mean to pray over somebody? And what on earth is anointing them with oil got to do with it? So firstly, why the elders? Why not ask someone who's, who's got an effective ministry to people in regards to healing? As far as I'm aware, actually, I can not say as far as I'm aware, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, qualifications for elders, says nothing about healing whatsoever. It's not a requirement. When you look at 1 Corinthians twelve nine, it's very clear that not all have gifts of healing, although certainly it would appear some do. But even if someone has gifts of healings, does not guarantee that person will heal on every single time. Any more that someone might have a gift of evangelism guarantees that if they talk to someone about Jesus, that they will come to saving faith. In both cases. It's a gift given by God. The power to make it effective comes from God. And the one who chooses whether or not it makes it effective is God. The person is nothing more than an instrument in the process, subject to the will of God. So why elders? Is it because somehow elders are something particular supernatural? I can assure you they are not. Maybe there's a clue in verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Now, I'm certainly not saying that the elders, they're the righteous. Although somehow, I'm not trying to give the impression that being an elder means that person is more righteous than everyone else in the congregation. But just by the nature of the qualifications for those to enter into that role, you would presume They would be godly men. Not the only godly men, but they would be godly men. And also part of their task has been given the role of being shepherds over a local flock. It makes sense that part of their care for you would be to pray for you during those times. So our second question, what about this praying over somebody? I've been in Christian circles where people talk all the time about praying over somebody. You want to know how many times the Bible uses this phrase to pray over somebody? Once. This is it. This is the only occurrence of it. And because it is the only occurrence of it, we've got no other comparison to other texts to kind of figure out what is intended by it. And it could just mean something as simple as the fact of someone's in this sickbed and by nature, physically, you are over that person while you're praying for them. be like Jesus when he laid the hands on the children in Matthew 19 we don't have other passages to clarify but what is clear in this passage is that the central aspect of it is not the approach to prayer it's not the use of oil or not the use of oil the central focus is the prayer itself that doesn't mean we're going to skip over the question of what on earth is this oil all about. If you ever read through commentaries on this section, this is the bit that will take up pages upon up, pages. Why anoint them with oil? What does oil do? And you'll get the full spectrum of everything from it suggesting that it's got some medicinal purposes, like you see the Good Samaritan, uh, Luke chapter ten. You see, he anoints him with oil, so it's some sort of a sort of a helping balm along the way, to it being some form of Symbolic use, like in the Old Testament, they would often anoint someone with oil, kind of showing that they are set aside for God's purpose. And in, the, and in this context, we're kind of like saying we're setting you aside for God to work, that He might heal, heal you, and it'd be recognized that He's the one doing the healing, not the person who is praying for you. But again, it's not a great deal of details given. But the, the fact, the very next verse talks about the power of prayer, not the power of oil would suggest that it's not the most important element. That's being said, I wouldn't neglect from using it. It doesn't it has to be any sort of special oil. It could be black and gold canola oil. <laughs> but even the outcome often gets disputed. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, in the context, it seems to be talking about the prayer in which the elders offered for the person who is sick. And it says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Again, commentaries go abounding in all sorts of ideas here, and there's a reason why the people have different views, is that there are two key phrases in this verse that the Bible uses in two different ways. The first one is where it says he will save the one who is sick. When we read through the Gospel of Mark, we read a number of times where it spoke about how God would heal someone. It was using that exact same language, the exact same Greek word which we use to save someone. For example, in the woman who had the bleeding issue, it says there in Mark five twenty-eight, she said, Even I touch, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. Exact same Greek word, I will be saved in mark five thirty four, same incident jesus says daughter your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you same greek word that james is using here in chapter 5 so is he talking about physical healing the context is sickness or is he talking about salvation well for james the context is sickness He is writing to Christians who are already saved, so it would seem most likely he's talking about them being made well. Then the other confusing aspect is, what does it mean to raise them up? Raise them up as in the resurrection on the last day. Raise them up from the sickbed like the lame in Acts chapter 3 or the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9. I mean, both may be a true statement. So does this mean... That James is promising, you ask the elders to pray for you, you are healed. Well, that's a little embarrassing. One of our elders is at home at the moment with COVID and a number of sick people in his home. Clearly the focus here is on whatever it's calling the prayer of faith that will save or heal. But how should we understand that? Well, I'm going to start by a few conclusions that we should not make from this passage we should not come to the conclusion that if I ask the elders to pray for me I guarantee that you will be healed I've probably prayed for a number of you and you didn't get healed you know that's not true nor do you come to the conclusion that if you ask the elders to pray for you and they use the black and gold canola oil that you will be healed or if you ask the elders to pray for you and they use the black and gold canola oil and they pray with enough faith that it guarantees that you will be healed. It frustrates me to know, Andrew, when I'm praying with people and they, they're praying for someone who is unwell and I've heard is, and they say, and I declare that, this, that you have healed this person and they are better now in the name of Jesus. You do not have the right to determine that. And these same people, it doesn't seem to bother them in the least when what they have declared that God has done hasn't transpired and that person continues to be sick. It is not God's will always to heal. He is the Lord, you are not. Any healing that has ever happened... God did it and God chose when it happened. He alone has the power to heal. He alone decides when and what situations to heal and what situations not to heal. In fact, those who suggest, say someone like a Bill Johnson for Bethel who would say that it's always God's will that someone be healed actually does a lot of damage. To the sick person, it does them damage in that someone prays for them. They don't get healed, so they're still unwell. And then they have someone accuse them, the reason why you didn't get healed is you have a lack of faith or you've got sin in your life. So they've got worse problems than what they had to start with. Or to the person who's convinced that God will always heal, often becomes bitter or disillusioned with God when that outcome does not transpire. Think about Paul when he speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He wasn't able to heal Timothy. When he talks about his own thorn in the flesh, God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking it away. We're seen in the opening chapter of James, sometimes the best thing to do is to ask for God's strength to stand up in the middle of it, that you might let endurance have its good and perfect work. So then, what is this prayer of faith that will heal or save someone? Because it's unavoidable, that's what it says. It doesn't say in the prayer of faith, might or a 50 50 chance. So, what is this prayer of faith? Or, oh, particularly, what is my understanding of this prayer and faith probably would be best because it's not that clear. Well, firstly, faith is always in something, it is a faith that is in God. It's a faith in a God who is sovereign. A faith in a God who has said, pray that your will be done, not what I command you to do. My best guess, and I'm going to put it down as a best guess, I'm not going to say this is the word of God, is that when there is a time when God has somehow made it so dramatically known that it is his his will, then you pray in faith according to that and it will take place. And I think the Lord agreed, if it was God's will, then a person would be healed. But that's very different than someone just declaring on the basis of a poor understanding of Isaiah 53, 5, that by his wounds we are healed, that that means that everyone will be healed, even though Isaiah 53 is very clearly talking about dealing with our sin, not dealing with our physical sicknesses. So how has that played out in my life? Well, I've prayed boldly for lots of people. I know how many times I've prayed confident that it was God's will that they would heal them. None. And I'm not going to make that presumption on God's behalf. But regardless of we, how you understand that difficult verse, we all must agree God does the healing. God decides when and who he will heal. That's not the only difficult application of verse 15. Verse 15 also brings the question of the connection with healing and if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now you probably presume by the fact it says if he has sinned means that this is not always the case but answers the question if someone posed that question. Now think back to poor old Job. When he lost everything, all of his mates... What a great support they were. They're like, it's your sin. That's, that's why you haven't been, why you've had all this stuff go through you. Yet Job was described as a blameless man. Or in John chapter 9, as he, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So clearly at the time of Jesus there was this idea amongst people that if someone was sick it must have been because of their sin and Jesus says, nah, not always the case. However, it can on occasions be the case. Think of what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and blood of the Lord let a person examine himself, then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. That's, so there's the two opposites. Jesus saying, "No, nope. him being sick's got nothing to do with it." Paul saying to the Corinthians, "Actually, some people, because of their sin, not only are sick; some of them died." Now the last thing I would want is for anyone to think all my sickness is a result of my sin and spend the whole life in paranoia I just haven't identified this sin that's keeping me sick. But neither would I want any person whether they're sick or whether they're entirely well to neglect to examine themselves on a daily basis and to bring their sin before God. And because sin could but not necessarily lead to sickness James prescribes this, saying therefore, in other words, in light of what he has just said, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He says, confess your sins to one another. That's probably another phrase that requires a bit of qualifying. There's been times in the history of the church where people interpreted that as there should be a time in the gathered church service where people stand up and they confess their sins to the entirety of the congregation. I don't think that's particularly a good thing to do. There may be a time and a place in certain circumstances, but I wouldn't say that we should, that's how we should implement this verse, that we should always bring all of our sins before the entirety of the congregation... Firstly, it places a temptation before those who might be inclined towards gossip or those who are inclined towards being proud and judgmental. And secondly, some sins sharing in a broad context would not be edifying for the whole church to hear about. But that being said, every Christian should have other mature Christians that they can talk to about their sin and their struggles to pray alongside with them. Now, unfortunately, this desire doesn't come particularly natural for us. We're not overly good at it. Sometimes we even pretend to be perfect Christians. Don't fake it. Don't pretend like everything's going well when it's not. Not only are you lying before God and failing to bring your needs before God and failing to bring, to bring others to come alongside you to pray with you and help you, but you're actually doing it to the detriment of others around you who look at you and think, wow, that person's got none of the struggles that I've got. I must be the, I must be the worst Christian in the world. And Remember what James says, confess them to one another that you may be healed. Keeping it to yourself is denying yourself from the opportunity for God to grow and change you and working you through the ministry of one another. Not just to all Christians, not to the entire congregation, it says, particularly the prayer of the righteous, as powerful as it is working. And to give an example, just like he did in the first half of chapter 5, he looks back to the example of one of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is what James says. He, this is a good example. Take a look at his, Elijah. He was a righteous man. And he was fervent in prayer. And when he was fervent in prayer about the rain, it didn't rain for three and a half years. And he says, you know what? He's just a man with a nature just like you and I. He wasn't some special super spiritual person. Now, again, you can read too much into that. You can say, well, if I've got a nature just like Elijah and he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years, then surely I can pray this person be healed in, in the name of Jesus and it will definitely happen. Well, context, context. When you read the event of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17-18, one thing you'll notice is God told Elijah to pray this particular prayer. God had revealed it to him that that was his will. And so he prayed accordingly and God answered accordingly. But it's exactly what John promised in 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That means if we ask things that are according to his will, whether they're small, whether they're massive and beyond what you think is humanly possible, if it is his will, he will answer it. James being the ever practical book, calling a people to live according to the truth. It's kind of fitting that the last verses says also to call others back to the truth Who may have been tempted to wander. My brothers, if anyone among you minders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. In previous chapters, James told us what not to do when somebody strays from the faith. Many are inclined towards using words of proud judgement against others, enjoy their little downfall, makes them feel better about themselves. So the right thing for the Christian to do if you genuinely love a brother or sister in Christ is not to delight in their failings, not to gossip about their failings, but to genuinely go to them and desire their restoration. To bring them back, to bring them back into right fellowship with the body and with, and with God himself, not to puff oneself up, or to go into gossip. Again, it's another complicated verse in terms of grammar as to whether or not it is the person who restores the person or the person who is restored will have their soul saved from death because the the, his could apply to either. And when you look at Ezekiel 3, that kind of points that both are very possible, saying if you warn the righteous person not to sin... And if he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So both equally true. James may have had the double meaning, or he might have just had one in mind, but both are equally true. What is clear is that we are called to treat one another as we have been treated. And don't we give thanks on a daily basis that God has called us and drawn us to himself even though we were wicked and sinful, that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. James has been an incredible, incredibly practical book. And what a fitting way to finish. To a people who have been promised trials, for a people who have been tempted to wander away in all seasons, in the good And in the bad, come before the Lord in prayer. Restore the wayward. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. If you're sick, pray and ask the elders to pray for you. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. It's no good just giving a a to-do list of things to do, lest it become another Old Testament law that none of us are able to keep. But reminding us to constantly depend upon God in prayer for His enabling, for His changing of His people. Eastgate, we want to continue to be a praying church. We want to continue to pray for ourselves, to pray for others, to be willing to ask others to pray for us, to dare to be more open with those who are close to us about our sins, our struggles that we might pray for one another, we actually might see God working through as we minister to one another. That we might declare something of the greatness of our God as we respond to him in praise, as we see his good work, that we might declare something of his goodness and his glory as we sing praises to him. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, that we would seek to know him more, to be transformed, to become more and more like him, and as disciple-makers to seek to restore others who wander, that they might be transformed to be more and more like him as they draw near to him for the glory and honour of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of James. We thank you that it, it is in the Scriptures. We thank you that it's your word given to us is your word which confronts so many of our, our sins and our, our habits and our natures, but also it reminds us of what you have done to help us in those areas, to transform us that we might no longer live according to the passions of our flesh. Lord, we acknowledge at times that we don't pray enough. And maybe not even at times, maybe all the time we acknowledge we don't pray enough. Lord, help us to be a people of prayer in all seasons of life. Not just in the big hardships, but we might be a people of praise in the good times. A people who who naturally look to pray for one another and to minister to one another. And Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. We thank you that you hear our prayers and we thank you for that promise, whether the prayer is big or small, if it is according to your good will and purposes, um, it will come to pass. But Lord, help us also to trust in your sovereignty that you alone know when and in what circumstances you wish to act in a particular way. And so, Lord, we pray... Your will be done. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.